0: and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm Les Raymond. Thanks for joining me today. I'm grateful to have Ryan Bush on the podcast today. Ryan, thanks for joining me, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Les.
0: I'm happy to be here. You're a busy guy. You've written... uh, two books, Designing the Mind and this most recent one, Become Who You Are. Is the recent book out and available yet?
1: It's out for pre-order now, uh, and we're kind of doing a big pre-order push, but the official launch date is February 27th.
0: Okay, right on the horizon. Uh, Congrats on getting that done. I'm sure it's an enduring process.
1: Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable. (laughs) I'm sure it was everything
0: you expected it to be.
1: Just, you know, (laughs) easy, you know, sit down for a few hours and just whip it up, right? Yeah, yeah. No, the the, uh, writing process for this one actually went much more smoothly than the first book. I felt like it was kind of a grind to get through the first one because I hadn't done it before. And uh, this one, I I kind of had a, I guess, pretty clear idea of what I wanted to say. And it it almost felt like it fell together. And uh, it's it's more been the, the launch and the publishing stuff that's so consuming at this point. Okay.
0: Do you feel that in the process of writing, designing the mind, you kind of improved the efficiency in the way your own mind worked? Like you learned from that writing process and then were able to deploy a more efficient mechanism between your your ears when going for round two?
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I did design my mind in the process of writing, designing my mind, designing the mind. Yeah, it's... um, it, it's interesting when you start out writing, because I, I hadn't done any real public writing before that first book. I didn't even have a blog, really. Um, and so I was learning a lot of the the writing lessons the first time. And uh, one of those is is just that you are always going to hate what you write the first time around. Uh, and, and so that kind of made it a struggle with the first book, the second book, I kind of knew, okay, I'm not expecting to like anything in the first draft. I'm just going to get as much on paper as I can and then refine it from there. And so there was a lot less strain and struggle, I think.
0: Gotcha. I'd like to talk about the second book, but I want to reverse first and and touch on designing the mind. Um, you, You have the ability to kind of merge, I guess, modern um, like science around psychology with a lot of the more ancient uh, philosophical like modalities where like what came first for you like where what brought you to that book and um how did you bring those kind of two ideas
1: together yeah so what first brought me to that book actually was um, not studying anything outside of me really, it was it was just being very interested in my own mind. Uh, from like early adolescence, I was kind of obsessed with the inner workings of my own thoughts and emotions, and um, and sometimes to the neglect of the the world around me. I pretty much never developed a sense of direction because I'm so internally focused. Um, and a, a lot of time, I probably should be socializing. I'm exploring ideas and and. Uh, observing what's going on in my head and and particularly trying to make changes to my own thoughts and emotions. Um, I, I was fascinated by the realization early on that you know I could have a bad thing happen to me and I could not take the normal cognitive path uh, or interpretation. I could d- go a different route and sort of rework things in my head and not experience that suffering that you would expect to come from a negative thing. And so I was constantly sort of reconfiguring things in my head. And and, uh, and I, I was kind of building up a body of ideas, even before I started reading other people's ideas, and uh, sort of anticipating that one day I would write a book about it. And then I found across, you know, I came across stoicism and a lot of ideas in psychology and Buddhism and Taoism and realized there were people who had beat me to it by a couple <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah.
0: Sorry for the listeners. There, we broke up. Uh, Ryan is dealing with a little bit of stormy situation on his end and lost connection. Ryan, well, welcome back to the Mindful Movement Podcast. Thank you um, very much. You just alluded to something that is really intriguing to me because it just feels so far removed of how I remember my upbringing. But you mentioned at an early age, like as a teenager, already being able to like be the witness, like see how your mind responds to. Like life situation, um, what age are we talking about here?
1: Uh, probably fourteenish. Um, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a little bit different. I think I think a number of things kind of could have led to that. I mean, my parents. Uh, you know, my mom has been really into mindfulness and and things like that, and and she never she never taught me into that any of that directly. But I think probably uh, I picked up on some of that stuff from her. And and both of my parents are very Sort of thoughtful people in general, um, but also and and you know, spoiler alert for the some of the things in the book. I I not too long ago sort of diagnosed myself with autism and started explaining some of the reasons why my brain works differently and why I had some of the you know social struggles I did at that age when I was you know kind of more interested in my own mind. And I think a lot of people with you know different sort of neuro neurodivergent minds develop a fascination or an obsession with a particular thing. Sometimes it's like machines. And for me, uh, the machine was my own mind. And so I was like detailing and, you know, I had all these books full of notes, uh, that I was trying to wrap my head around, you know, my own inner workings. And so, yeah, it definitely kind of took over at a pretty early age and slowly built to now where it's kind of my full-time thing.
0: That's wild. That's like the opposite of how I remember my child, <laughs> just mindlessly going through the motions, um, thinking about things I wanted. So, right. designing the mind is, as I think, as you phrase it, is like an operating manual for the mind, and you use this term psych uh, psychotext
1: psychotecture, like Psychitecture. psychology and architecture. Yeah.
0: Let's uh, expand on that a little bit. Um, what does that word mean to you?
1: Yeah. So the whole um that whole first book has this very technological sort of software uh, framework that it applies to the mind. And it says that in many ways, we can view our minds in the same way that a software developer might view a piece of software that they're working on. And we can zoom in on the individual algorithms, the sort of chains of if-then relationships that sort of lead us from one place to another in our heads. Um, so for example, you know, we have a lot of thoughts that you know, will occur in our minds and in reaction to certain events, the thoughts get triggered and those thoughts and interpretations then lead to uh, certain emotional reactions, right? This is a core principle of cognitive behavioral therapy um, that our emotions don't just respond directly to what's going on in the world around us most of the time. They're sort of filtered through our thoughts and we can ultimately change those interpretations and thoughts. Uh, you could say like rewrite that particular algorithm so that uh, you know different events trigger different emotions and the same goes for habits the same goes for cognitive biases you know we see all these uh, interrelations when we actually zoom in on what's going on in our head and if we really learn to understand these these core principles behind it, we have a lot more power to change our habitual sort of operating system we can eliminate a lot of the you know core you know, negative emotions that we might experience on a regular basis. Um, and, and ultimately, the, the one thing we have to do before we can make any of these changes is develop a clear awareness of what's going on in our head. Uh, you know, just like you can't repair your glasses without taking them off and observing them. If we're sort of fused with our thoughts and emotions, uh, we have no shot at really reworking them and redesigning uh, our own experience.
0: So like detaching from the thought and emotion is the first step, like getting some separation from whatever you experience you are from those so that you realize they're not you, they're like emerging. You're some kind of conduit for those to emerge from somewhere.
1: Exactly. And then what?
0: And then so you're you're in that book. What's the general framework? that somebody would go from that step of awareness to reconfiguring, like really altering your relationship with whatever those uh, thoughts and emotions mean.
1: Right. So chapter one is where I sort of, besides the introductory notes, I talk about mindfulness and, and stepping back and developing metacognitive awareness. And then after that point, there's sort of three parts of the book, I go through cognitive, emotional and behavioral. Um, and then each of those has three chapters. And so um, in the cognitive realm, I talk about uh, cognitive biases, how how our thinking is sort of systematically distorted on a regular basis, and how we can you know, become more aware of these biases, start labeling them, start sort of changing them so that we can think more clearly. Uh, I talk about introspection and how a lot of those same biases affect our view of our own selves, our own happiness. Uh, We make a lot of decisions that are based on distorted beliefs about what will actually make us happier um, and just generally cultivating wisdom and putting those two together in a sense. Mm. Uh, Then I go through emotions. I talk about uh, particularly the ideas in in cognitive therapy that have their roots in ancient stoicism. Um, I you know I talk about how uh, we can change our our beliefs and then end up changing our emotional habits through that. Uh, I talk about what I call desire modulation or uh, how to change what you want so that you sort of get what you want more often. Um, and uh, and combining those into equanimity. And and going through individual emotions and saying, how, how do we rework jealousy? How do we reinterpret uh, the thoughts that give rise to anger? How do we go through all these individual uh, emotions? And then I dive into behaviors and habits and, and how we can change either the inputs and the environmental triggers to our habits, change the consequences so we reward ourselves for different things, change our appraisals so we interpret different sort of tempting stimuli in a way that makes them less Likely to compel us to take an action we don't want to, and so, um, yeah, You're like a real technician. I mean, I I, I like very that way of technical thinking about
0: approach. It.
1: Well, and I I have a a background in product design, and so I I approach the mind with a kind of creative problem solving lens. It's very much like, uh, you know, what's the solution to this specific glitch that's going on in the mind? it's, it's very when you much say how I...
0: product development, are you are you talking about like? Uh within it or are you talking about like physical manifestation making toys or like what do you kind of products are you talking
1: about <laughs> so industrial design was my degree and that that sounds a lot more boring than it is but it's just the design of typically physical products um and so like johnny ive has been the the industrial designer at apple uh designing the iphones and you know everything and and uh but I've also ventured into designing software, but it's um, it's very much like user-centered. It's human-centered design. So gotcha. it's about how do we create the best experience for the person using this thing? How do we make it the most ergonomic, the most intuitive, the most beautiful? Um, and so it, I think it's interesting that here we're, we're trying to make us uh, pleasant to use for us. We're <laughs> right. optimizing our own user interface with our own yeah. mind. And so... Um, It's a cool approach uh,
0: that you have, and it's—I would say um, it's—it stands out as quite different than what I'm used to hearing in the in the world of you know mindfulness or just um, you know like self development or personal growth or whatever category you want to throw it into. Can we expand on a couple of those things you mentioned? You talked about um, cognitive biases, and I know there's many, but I feel like. There's a lot of that that goes around everywhere. now, can you um like double click on one of those that you think is common that people
1: deal with un- unknowingly? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think one of the most pernicious, pernicious is cognitive is um confirmation bias, right? We have uh, and this this is almost like a whole category of biases, but we have a tendency to look for evidence that just confirms what we already want to believe. Um, so, and you, you can notice this if you start looking out for it. When you you know type in your Google searches about a topic, you will you know either frame the the way you phrase it in a way that will show you more of what you want to see or you know you won't click on the results that seem like they're challenging your views. and and uh, and contrary to what you might think, you actually can get a lot better at this. Um, there's a book I really like called Scout Mindset. That's all about shifting to a mindset where you're no longer trying to confirm what you already believe. You're no longer identifying with specific beliefs, uh, but instead you are identifying as someone who will update your beliefs in the face of new information and and sort of being independent in the way you develop views. And so, um, you know, I talk about it like, uh, you know, a good uh, software developer will every day be looking to make improved iterations to their software and won't be, you know, attached to one. And we can approach our beliefs in the same way instead of latching onto this and saying, this is right. This is what I'm going to build my identity around saying, okay, it's a new day. How do I iterate on this? How can I challenge this view and maybe adopt a better one with new information? Um, And so. That's interesting.
0: I I, I am totally guilty of that. I have this like um, subconscious, like desire to be right too much yeah and i know it's um it can be a feature but it's mostly a bug like it's a feature in some ways i'm able i've helped a lot of people over the years because of my desire to try to figure out like what's true about maybe a health intervention that helps this person feel better in their body or whatever uh but it's also bug like it also um interferes with me being like what I would like to be, like the version I would like to be in myself where I can more quickly be kind before being right, mm-hmm. if if you know what I mean. And, I mean, um, but it's interesting when you say it affects like how you make a Google search, like something we all do. Like in that scenario, I've, I've found myself that place many times where I'm searching for the, inter- the internet to tell me exactly what i want to <laughs> see and then if yeah. something comes up that counters that i'm not clicking on that so you mentioned uh, a book that talks about this but like how do you, what would be an example of how to approach altering like tweaking or rediverting that habit so like you're you're going to search something if you go in and just say i want to search something that contradicts what my current belief is that might make you not get to any solution that's useful for you, right. How do you approach like the the query or the selection of the results
1: yeah i I very much have a desire to be right too, and i it definitely comes out if I get in you know arguments in my relationships more than anything i think um so i I relate to that I think uh the solution that I've sort of laid out and it it's not quick or simple necessarily, but it's sort of taking an inventory of the things that one, you believe, but two, you want to believe. Um, I even create kind of a diagram. There's, there's like over a hundred diagrams in this first book, um, showing like sort of drawing a different length of arrow for each belief based on how much you want it to be true or not true. And, uh, Ultimately, while while beliefs are not a bad thing, and obviously we we need to believe things if we're going to make sense of the world in any way and make decisions, um, desires to hold specific beliefs are a bad thing. And so when we do notice those, we take an inventory and we say, I really want to believe this. Uh, that should sort of trigger a red flag in our mind. We should say, okay, I need to get away from this attachment that I have toward this belief. And And this same approach applies to emotional attachments and, and things like that. We can sort of cancel out our desires in some cases. And in this case, you really want to spend some time with that belief that you really want to hold and it's opposite and get yourself one way or another to a place where you could be okay with believing one thing or another. Uh, that's not an easy thing for a lot of people, especially given like social circles where, uh, you know, everyone in your life, wants this one thing to be true and would treat you like an outcast if you went against it. Um, but ultimately, I think there are ways to rework this so you you can believe or you can at least be willing to believe the opposite it wouldn't be so painful for you. I think just gradually reworking your identity over time to the point where it, it doesn't center around that one thing being true, but instead uh, around following whatever seems to be most likely to be true. I think is is really helpful. Like you, you can get to where you really take pride in holding, like one particular contrarian view, uh, even though a lot of your views seem to be on one side. And so, uh, yeah, just an awareness of those desires to hold beliefs and and building equal and opposite desires to sort of cancel them out.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I think it probably because of the, like how things have changed over the last hundred or so years so rapidly, the tribal component or our need to like fit in and be a part of a group combined with the current flow of information probably like ignites this fire of suffering (laughs) of these biases and just like is kind of like gasoline on the fire
1: yeah so our beliefs aren't really built to be like Accurate. That's not really why the whole belief module exists in our brain in the first place. It is primarily for communal bonding. It's to bring us together with our tribe, and I agree. It does very much become a problem when you create an internet ecosystem that just feeds us more of what we want to hear and and amplifies the loudest, most outraged voices. It's it's all very much a recipe for disaster. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think the approach that's needed is both a psychological one where individuals uh, adopt a mindset of, of, you know, centered around critical thinking and this kind of scout mindset and systemic solutions that change, you know, the way these algorithms work that sort of pull us into echo chambers.
0: It's going to be interesting as new technologies, I think, unfold that account for these and that have some kind of like uh, noble calls built into them in the programming to help um, show you different ways of looking things. So it's like, so you, so you're maybe easier to see like, oh, this is the lens that I'm used to seeing it. And it's designed to, to not just, um, to get you out of the echo chamber essentially in, in a more inviting way that doesn't make you want to just see that opposing side as like, some sort of mental enemy but something yeah. that's more inviting to say let's show you some different ways to look at this
1: it it would be great to see technologies emerging that had that focus um unfortunately it's it's more profitable to uh, to show people things that will get them to take uh behaviors that you want them to take and and believe whatever is you know helps uh <laughs> helps the most sort yeah. of but in time that might change i mean if you think about how
0: young like let's say social media in general is i mean it's still as much as it's changed and as powerful as it is it's still kind of in the infancy stage like if i'm sure if if we're still here 50 years from now 100 years, whatever we'll look at this it'll look a lot different and i i would assume that the demand for those things will grow for them to be more sophisticated and because people don't want to live their life mad at each other or at themselves or, you know, yeah. constantly reminded that they don't um,
1: feel good about themselves or such. Sure. And, Hopefully. you know, I'll, I'll say I've, I've got a platform called MindForm that in many ways is meant to be like the healthy social media platform. And crucially, it's, it's subscription-based and not advertising-based. So, it you know, there's no incentive to just you know, boost engagement and get people outraged and all that. It, it, the incentive is to keep them happy and keep them wanting to renew and uh, really serve their values rather than their strongest desires. Um, but it will never be as profitable to right. serve values as it is desires. And so a lot of these bigger companies without regulation will never even be able to make that shift. Um, so speaking but,
0: of desires, you mentioned a moment ago uh desire modulation was part of these steps i know we skipped a few steps but you're talking about uh seeing your desires and then changing them can you what are you referencing there like what's isn't desire part of the thing that helps us you know get out of bed and be motivated to accomplish something
1: Sure yeah I'm not an advocate for having no desires at all and I, I actually you know a lot of people interpret like Buddhism that way, and I don't think that's really what it's about either but um, attachments to specific outcomes uh, will cause us to suffer both when we fail to achieve those outcomes because we didn't have that control in the first place and very often when we achieve them and realize that wasn't what we wanted in the first place that that doesn't actually make us happy and so we have a lot of rogue desires sort of running around in our heads, uh, causing problems, they, they create biases, they cause us to take actions we're not proud of, and they result in suffering. And so I think it's best to look at your desires and, and say, um, you know, which, which of these are actually pulling me in the direction of my values, and which ones are sort of pulling me away from them, uh, or distracting from that aim. And then you you essentially want to rework them until all of your desires are sort of in general alignment with what actually makes you proud of yourself and and admire yourself and that's that's getting into the message of the new book a little bit but in general um going through and saying okay what what desire is causing me to suffer here well okay i'm in traffic right now i want to i want to be moving and i'm stuck here um you know you can you will, you will suffer and you'll experience anxiety and anger if you don't do something about that desire. And it just keeps pushing and saying, I don't want to be stuck in traffic. And so you can go in and, and sort of channel the feeling that you might get if you're stuck at a red light. Um, And and then it turns green, but actually you were doing something, you wanted more time at the red light. And then you're like, oh no, I have to put my (laughs) phone down or whatever. Um, And so there are, there are sort of ways to balance out your desires or to Lower your desires. Um, you know, if you, um, if we look at like the, the the Walter Mitchell marshmallow test, um, where you know we kind of learned that children who are better able to delay gratification have better you know life outcomes long term. Um, ultimately, what what the children who are able to resist a marshmallow for longer are doing is is they're employing psychological methods to alter or lower those desires because they know uh, it aligns more with their values on some level um, to wait and and do what they were asked to, right? Get a second marshmallow or whatever the reward is. So you can, you know, distract yourself. Is that them uh,
0: thinking about the, their values and what aligns with it? Or (laughs) is it, they might just think they're going to get more marshmallows if they hold on. Agreed. Agreed. Could that just be greed? (laughs) Uh, They're just smarter about manipulating
1: (laughs) their greed. Right. (laughs) Well, and it's all about getting what, what will actually make you happier, but um, not caving into the thing that you kind of know won't make you happier, but you just, your desires really want. And so I think, you know, uh, the the kids who did that successfully were distracting themselves, uh, playing with a toy. Uh, You know, another option is to reinterpret the way you think about the, the marshmallow or whatever the thing you you want is. Um, So there are lots of lots of methods for getting these desires to work with you instead of against you. I also think a lot of people who appear unmotivated in their lives, who think they are lazy or they just can't you know, get anything done, are actually people with a lot of conflicting desires. And so they're they're pointing in sort of opposing directions and keeping them what appears to be standing still. But if you could just get those desires to line up, you would find yourself to be an incredibly motivated person. Um, so it's it's just a matter of developing greater control over these individual uh, wants. That's interesting. Sometimes
0: um, I find myself, and I see this in my wife too, where it's almost like paralysis by analysis. Like you got so much stuff that you want to do to do and they're all pointing different directions. And it's kind of like, um, it makes it hard to take step a step forward. So you'd rather just like ignore the whole list. Um, Yeah. So, but taking the time to analyze those with like a different, from a different angle of your mind allows you to kind of direct the traffic a little bit better and um, make a more efficient way to get through the to-do list or whatever.
1: Yeah. You you
0: mentioned um, proud of yourself and that, is more of what the new book become who you are. Thank you for sending me this copy, by the way. Yeah. Um, you talk about kind of become who you are, like identifying the type of person you want to be and moving into that direction. There's a graph you use in here. Um, that's very interesting that maybe we could talk, we could talk a little bit about it's, um, I guess you like, you like graphs. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's a uh, three-dimensional, so it's on one axis. You have um. What is it? Essentially, happiness or. Right, I can. You I
1: can, you, uh, you, you take over. Sure. Yeah, I've gotten good at explaining these visuals verbally here. So. Okay. Um, yeah. So essentially, you can kind of imagine there's a chessboard sitting in front of you. Uh, and you know, it's a two dimensional kind of two axes, uh, the left and right axis represents pleasure and pain. So further to the right on this chessboard, more pleasure in your life at that time. And further left is more pain and suffering discomfort, uh, on the Y axis, sort of moving closer to you or further away on the chessboard, you've got loss and gain. And so you've got ostensibly good things, right? Success and, and, uh, money and status and all these things. And then you've got loss, the, the ostensibly bad things that happen to us in life. And so what I argue is that basically by default, all of us are going around in our lives navigating using this two-dimensional map. We're all trying to improve pleasure uh, or sacrifice pleasure so that we can achieve greater long-term gain, sort of maximize more later pleasure. Um, and, and this is really what determines how we're living. And, and the problem with this is that when we actually think about it and we actually look at the data on it, these dimensions don't correspond all that well to actual well-being and life satisfaction. Uh, there are all too many stories and and a lot of data suggesting like people who win the lottery, which is seemingly the best thing that could happen. That's, that's all the gain and all the pleasure that can come from that gain. Um, they they don't necessarily feel any happier a year after that than they did before. And same for someone who like loses their legs. I mean, lottery winners, paraplegics, they have the same levels of happiness a year after their incidents. And so if, if this is the case, if the things that we think make us happy uh, are not actually doing it, and we're still going around chasing them, uh, you know, we've clearly got a bad map that we're using to navigate our lives. And you know, there's a book called Stumbling on Happiness that basically argues that we pretty much do stumble on happiness. We're not very good at predicting what will make us happy or actually achieving it. Um, but I think the reason goes a little deeper than just a lot of sort of affective forecasting biases. I think we actually have a, a systematic way of of missing the point of what actually makes us happier in our lives. And so this is where I introduce a third dimension. Right? You can imagine extruding mountains and valleys out of this chessboard. So now it's a topographical three-dimensional chessboard. Uh, And and what I argue is that while we're going around using this two-dimensional map, our actual happiness is corresponding to this third dimension. And so sometimes we'll experience pleasure and gain in our lives, and and we'll be happy too. And that's essentially because we've also climbed up this third-dimensional mountain. And there are other times when everything is great and our lives on paper. And we're miserable and we don't know why. And the reason is because we've gone down into a valley. And so the question is, what is this third dimension? And I've used a couple different words to get it across. I like to start with admiration because I think this is pretty straightforward. Uh, And and it's a kind of self-admiration. It's the idea that the more reason we give ourselves to admire ourselves, the more satisfied we're going to feel at that point in our lives. And so... You know, there are times when, you know, taking that job with the higher salary and the, you know, the beautiful location really is the thing that's going to make us happier because that job is going to bring out more of our greatest strengths and give us more reason to admire ourselves. There are other times when that thing that seems best on paper is actually going to suppress our our greatest strengths. You know, some people will retire and think this is what they've been working for their whole lives. This is going to be amazing. And then they find they don't have an outlet for what was essentially earning their self-esteem before. And now they, they lose that positive view of themselves that they held before. Yeah. And so this is, this is what I argue from a lot of different angles throughout this book, is that our happiness actually corresponds to what the ancient Greeks called virtue or arete um, and and the unique signature virtues that each of us are able to bring out on a regular basis in our lives. That's cool.
0: There was another word too you used. I'm probably going to butcher it. Euda- eudaimonia, say it.
1: eudaimonia. Yeah, Euda- that's how I say it. eudaimonia. <laughs> different... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, that's, and so that's the same idea as the self admiration, essentially. Yeah, eudaimonia is sort of a word um, used to refer to a kind of happiness, and it's generally the deepest kind of happiness, the kind that we're all really talking about when we talk about what we want uh, in life the most, but. It gets muddled by ideas of just any positive emotion, pleasure, joy. Yeah, right? Sure. This this kind of orients us toward the the deepest kind of well being. And um, yeah, the the ancient Greeks, interestingly, they didn't have this cool three dimensional diagram, but it maps on pretty much exactly with what they said. It was it was pretty much a staple of their uh, respective philosophies. Whether it was Stoicism or Epicureanism or Aristotle, they all kind of agreed happiness. And virtue are completely intertwined. They they don't really separate. And you can have uh, all the things in the world if you don't have virtue, you you don't have eudaimonia. And and similarly, you can have everything taken away from you. And as long as you continue to act virtuously, if you if you continue to demonstrate wisdom and self control and and uh, you know all these other great strengths, you will still be happy. And that that's why Socrates is, is said to have you know willingly gone to his own execution, even though he could have escaped because he would rather die virtuously than to uh, than to live, you know, and compromise his ideals.
0: Yeah, there's so much interesting uh, variability and in dynamics between people and what makes them happy. And I think uh, I'm sure most people have heard the idea of like once you make a certain amount of income, it's really up in the air. Like once your basics are covered, Like Until they're covered, like shelter and food, there's generally more happiness will emerge as you get closer to them being covered. So like every additional dollar in the bank account that provides that underlying like safety, security, it really means a lot. And you see that in like the stress that people have around finances. Uh, But then like you can have a lot of money and there's no guarantees. I remember having a client that was one of the wealthiest people that i've ever personally come in contact with and he had no kids and he was already in his let's say mid to late 60s and like he had enough money for a lot of people to live the rest of their lives and his biggest fear was running out and it terrified wow. him yeah. and i remember having such a hard time understanding and I had another client that had a lot of money that it was still, he didn't have a fear, but it was like the biggest stress in his life. And he put it like, well, it's all relative. So if I make a mistake, they're like big mistakes. I was like, okay, I, I get that. Like it it shows, and then I've met people that really have had no extra and they're just always so happy. I've been some people in my family and um, like so much to learn from them. It's interesting, the dynamics. So what you're saying is that the... I don't know if it would be called vertical, like this three-dimensional axis that emerges out of this plane. So the plane is a gain or loss, getting things, losing things, or um, pain or pleasure. things that not necessarily make you happy, but like things you want make you feel good mm-hmm. or or you know that scale. this this three-dimensional one really speaks to what happiness is the word is like pointing to and that it's intertwined with virtue, like the values that you live your life by is, is
1: that essentially what you're talking about? Exactly. Yeah. There there are a lot of things that go through that are sort of decoys in those early chapters. and, And I think money is one of the most tempting ones. I think most of us have a money addiction today because you'll see people not really act in accordance with that, uh, that data that like you you make a certain amount of income and then more doesn't actually make you happier. But people always want more. They always chase more, uh, even though, no, it actually doesn't seem to continually make us happier. And so it is kind of this hedonic treadmill. And what we're getting at here is you might say the hedonic escalator. It's how you actually go up in well-being instead of just, you know, chasing the carrot all day. And, and there's a lot of reason to think this is true. I, I think we can look at Uh, You know, studies of clinical depression, for example, and see that pretty much invariably people who are depressed have a negative view of themselves. People who are severely depressed see themselves as worthless, incompetent and unlovable. In other words, they don't see evidence of their own virtues. Right. And you can look at the opposite, too. I mean, Martin Seligman has done a lot of research on uh, I mean, he's like the father of positive psychology. He's he's studied signature strengths and virtues. Uh, more than just about anyone alive today. Uh, He did a cross-cultural study with Christopher Peterson where they basically came out with a list of 24 virtues and values that are held across all cultures, pretty much. We see them uh, in all humans. So there's something very deeply ingrained in our brains about this. And he says, you know, basically his formula for happiness is to use your signature strengths every day. He's done tons of studies on the correlation between uh, exercising your strengths and virtues and happiness. And, and it's a very strong correlation. And when I look back at my own life, just for an extra sort of anecdotal layer of evidence, it pretty much maps on perfectly. The times that I was happiest and felt the most fulfilled in my life were the times that I was able to exercise my greatest strengths and the worst periods of my life. And I sort of outlined both of those and tell some stories about it in this book. Um the worst periods were where I didn't feel like I had an outlet or couldn't see my own greatest strengths and and it ultimately started believing they didn't exist and and uh you know self-esteem and depression start you know going down and down into that valley on that third dimension.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that resonates with me too. I remember I so I run a gym and work like one-on-one with people and if I had a strength it's like taking the beginner and getting them um, up and running like mm-hmm. it's not um it's a different skill set than what they teach you when you're getting like a like a personal training certificate it's like taking a real person that's in their 50s been sitting at a desk 30 years or whatever and like finding the right dose the right intervention and it got taken from me when we got shut down from the pandemic mm and um it was a unique thing that I wasn't used to like I felt my sense of self-worth really take a hit like um my kids are at an age where they don't need me that much it's like what's my what's my purpose it was like it was depressing yeah um and but on the flip side I want to push back a little bit to your idea I have a son and he went through a period where he was trying to figure out what to do he like finished high school early And he had a couple passions of his. And I don't know if this is the same, but he had a couple passions. And I've always felt like find what you like to do and then find a way to, you know, pay your bills with it or whatever. And then you won't go to work. Like that's what I grew up kind of hearing, um, I don't know, like uh, self development teachers talk about. And he, in his, uh, you know, 15 year old wisdom or 16 year old wisdom, he said, well, that's the last thing I want to do. Like, the last thing I want to do is take the thing I love and make it a job. Then it right. won't be fun anymore. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> a really good point. Like, there's <laughs> more than one side of this uh, coin, you know? Um, yeah. And like, is that just the function of he's at that age, doesn't realize it yet? Or is there something to that also where you're... Well, and you know that's something more of a pleasure thing, not necessarily a strength. So, like, I guess the question is, how do you identify what a what a strength is to somebody? Where that's like, how do you define what the what a strength is that should be, or not should be, but has this benefit to attaching to the way that you're living your life to ensure this vertical movement off.
1: The 2D plane. Yeah, a couple a couple things there. One, I think um, I think both approaches to kind of choosing a career can make a lot of sense. I mean, ultimately, um, there are a lot of different what I call virtue domains or areas that you can bring out your greatest strengths. One of them is typically going to be work and your career. Uh, another is going to be your relationships. Your greatest strengths might have to do with your charisma and humor and and ability to to show and and receive love and. So there are a lot of a lot of different strengths, and and your hobbies and communities can be uh, domains for that too. So uh, turning a turning what you love into a career is not the only way to ensure that that thing you're good at stays a part of your life. You know, I I have been playing music since I was five years old, and I kind of decided not to ruin it in a sense by making it my career, but at the same time I've I've made philosophy and psychology and design my career. And I've I've never been more fulfilled doing what I'm doing now. So uh, I think both approaches can make sense. And, and you know, I'll say one, like, uh, right now, I'm trying to strategize, bring even more virtues into this one concentrated place. I'm saying, like, can I, like, perform the background music in my YouTube videos on piano, so that I'm bringing that strength into my regular practice, too. And so, more and more as I've pieced together these ideas, I've started navigating my life uh, very much according to this. But um, I think as far as the question of how we figure out which of these strengths will do this for us, there are a few exercises that I really highly recommend um, and that, that will seem really simple. I think one of them is just creating a list of the people you admire most, uh, whether that's people in your life, uh, could be historical figures, could even be fictional characters, uh, whoever has done something that gave you that feeling of admiration and say, man, I want to be like that. Like uh, I really like how that person deals with conflict or how they express appreciation or whatever it is um, creating that list of people. And then a sort of a sublist of what specific traits you admire about those people, that's going to give you a list of your sort of top values. And, and ultimately you want to become the person who embodies as many of those traits as you can. Um, Another approach is to look at what you're already good at, to look at what you've potentially been good at since you were a little kid um, and really make sure you're being conscious of that because often uh, doubling down on our strengths can be more strategic than trying to fight an uphill battle with our weaknesses. And so there's there's a test that Martin Seligman has on his website, for example, the signature strengths test that will Give you a a pretty decent list of your top five greatest strengths, and it's it's certainly not definitive. Even the way that we conceptualize virtues, I think, can be different for each person, uh, and that's what Nietzsche said, who's sort of the sort of inspired the title of this book, uh, that everyone has a unique virtue that's unique to them and no one else. And so, ultimately, all these tools give you greater insight into what those strengths are, what that strategy is going to be, and and how you can Sort of become more like the person you would most admire, um, and then there there are exercises for every scale. So if you are actively depressed, for example, and you really aren't seeing any evidence of your own virtues, you're caught in this vicious cycle of, you know, being in a bad mood, right? That making you not want to go out and do things, that making you not have a positive view of yourself, and that continuing to in the cycle of not making you in a good mood. Um, you know, you have to kind of claw your way out of this cycle. And one of the most proven effective methods for doing this is called behavioral activation, where you essentially go out and and create a list of activities you're going to do every day, starting with baby steps. I mean, every day I'm going to get out of bed and take a shower, for example, uh, you know, or building off of that. Once you've got that down every day, I'm going to go for a walk and call a friend or something. Um, you know, all of these at the way I interpret it is that all of these gradually increase the amount of virtue that you are bringing out in your behaviors and giving yourself evidence of. Crucially, you have to be able to see what you're good at in order to uh, approve of yourself and feel good about yourself. That's
0: really hard for some people. I mean, if you're in the midst of depression, you're you know you're talking about the idea of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps in a way, like. Right. Um you know, telling some someone to do something if you're depressed, to do something so that you're less depressed. Right. It's like yeah. very easy to say when you're someone else looking at the person that's suffering. But when you're in the midst sure. of suffering, picking, picking up the book to look at the graph that tells you that, or is uh, you know, where does that um inspiration come from like where how do you how does someone get that to arise without a reference point without an anchor to get leverage off of um that's a real challenge which ultimately probably speaks to a bigger societal thing where people that need support from their community their tribe whatever we're not structuring society well enough where that's provided enough
1: yeah 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 absolutely it 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 is incredibly difficult. It's hard to empathize with it if you're not depressed, but you know, getting out of bed can feel like lifting a boulder to someone who is. Um, and so two things about it, I think the the beauty of behavioral activation is that one, um, people often feel like they, there are a lot of things they have to be doing. and And again, like we talked about, that can result in analysis paralysis and sort of dilute their motivation. And so just telling them, this is what you need to do. This is all you need to do. Just do the two items on your activity schedule. I think that that will make it more likely that you're actually going to do it. And two, the fact that you can break this down incrementally and go in baby steps. So no matter where you're at, you are only ever challenging yourself a little bit. So if you're already you know, getting up and cleaning your room every day, you're only adding one additional layer to that at each point. And only when you've mastered that, do you add another one until you're essentially back to normal functioning and beyond potentially. Um, so b- between the singular focus and and the baby steps, I think it gives a way for people who don't feel like they can do anything to very gradually get to where they can do more and more.
0: It's a very analytical process, the the, the way you break it down.
1: Yeah, well, and it's interesting you say that because the other one, the other thing I tell people to do, essentially if if you are if you're depressed because you're actually not taking these actions that align with your values, then I think behavioral activation is going to be the best approach. If you're depressed because you you are taking these actions and everyone else around you can see it, but you're not seeing it for some reason, you're not receiving the signal of those virtues, then there are probably distorted beliefs uh, sort of resulting in a, in a problem there. And that's when cognitive restructuring, which is the, the really analytical approach, is going to be more needed, right? That's kind of like what we talked about in in the first book, uh, going through and identifying your distorted beliefs uh, and and restructuring them so that they they work with your emotions better. Well, that's um,
0: probably a really common thing, having a distorted belief that might be leading you to, as you said earlier, like to chase the carrot, to look for happiness in somewhere where it isn't. Or whatever but Mm -hmm. those are um those are pretty deep embedded in us and you know becoming part of our software at a very young age whether it's as a result of you know trauma or you know whatever drove the subconscious to believe a certain thing about yourself that's a that's like a big hurdle to overcome that's probably underlying a lot of the actions and behaviors that people wind up like deploying in their life that don't align with what they actually value. And it also might be because they don't really take the time to identify what they value. I mean, that's not no. something that we, um, you get in like the school system when you're going through the, you know, the generic school system, you're not taking timeouts to periodically check in with
1: the things that are important to you. Oh, yeah, and and a lot of what motivates my work is trying to create the things that I think should already be in the you know early school system. You know, I made this deck of introspection cards uh, because no one makes you ask the questions that I think we should all be sort of asking ourselves. So I it's sort of a like take a card with you on a walk, take their, your little pocket-sized journal and answer one question every day. And it sort of builds uh, your understanding of yourself and your values and and you know, who you admire and these things walks you gradually through this process of introspection. Um, but I also think, um, you know, a big a big part of that, I do think everyone should, you know, learn about cognitive therapy. I don't think it's just a therapy for people who are struggling with mental illness. I think it's kind of a basic fundamental skill and mind over mood and feeling good are both great books specifically about that. But I also think one of the best ways to override deeply held beliefs is not just, you know, kind of sitting around and examining them, but proving it to yourself, proving yourself wrong. And that's why a big part of both depression and anxiety treatment is about going out and running experiments in your life, testing hypotheses, proving to yourself, oh, this is a distorted belief, because look, It's not responding the way I predicted. I thought people would, you know, make fun of me if I said this, and that's been guiding a lot of my actions, but actually people respond really open and compassionately when I say this. So, um, going out and actually proving to yourself can be more powerful than just, you know, reworking the beliefs, uh, you know, with a pen and paper. Gotcha. Ryan, when you talk about
0: the, again, getting back to the, um, I just want to say this again, eudaimonia.
1: Did I say that right? Yeah, I say eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, yeah. the yeah. three-dimensional
0: growing out of this plane. You're saying that that's basically tightly linked with, you know, living with virtues. What are um uh, can we touch on some of the like common virtues that come up that you're discussing? You said uh, there were I don't know what you mentioned that had listed like 20 some different virtues, but so that people could get a reference of what specifically you're talking
1: about. What are some of these virtues? Sure. Yeah. So my top virtues are wisdom and ingenuity, uh, charm. And, um, you know, I've I've kind of conceptualized them my own way. You know, rationality, vision. Um, these are just some of mine. Someone else might have charisma, courage, creativity. Uh, you know, there's a there's a huge list of, you know, he appreciation of beauty, ability to give and receive love. Um, I mean, there, there are tons of them, leadership, um, you know, spirituality, there are, the the way I lay it out is sort of a spectrum. I I basically say there's a potentially infinite number of virtues. It's just like a, you know, the colors Um, you're going to have your own unique subset. You need to conceptualize them and and label them in a way that feels right to you. Uh, But ultimately it's not bad to start by looking at Martin Seligman's List of twenty four. I think they're pretty good in general, um, and and the fact that they do map onto all these different cultures, the fact that it's not just uh, cultural indoctrination, but this, there seems to be something deeply human on an evolutionary level about these things. Uh, that that makes them really interesting. I think it's,
0: it spans across like space and time.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So if so, the idea is essentially you take these virtues that resonate with you. And it's like, I want to be the type of person that exudes these. Like, if I were to be proud of myself, if I were to have self-admiration, it would be because I live in a way that aligns with these. Yes. And then what are like the checkpoints? Like, how do you assess in real time that you're doing that, that like, you were right—that <laughs> like, that, that you're on track. That the direction you're walking is still aligning with whatever you've identified as what the, you know, target
1: is. Yeah, it, it's a good question. I think some of it uh, will just come down to asking yourself how you feel about yourself right now. What what feels like it's missing? You know, going through some of these, some of these questions and and uh, like the, the, who you admire and saying how well am I embodying these things, right? How how often do I feel self admiration? How often do I sort of pat myself on the back and say, like, I, I handled that well, or I, I brought out this strength, I'm really proud of this thing I'm good at. Um, but ultimately, it, it, it is a, a messy process. I wish there was a you know, <laughs> yeah, completely foolproof step by step, but we're very good at to... <laughs> self judging <laughs> right. with a negative twist.
0: So not the easiest thing for people to say i'm really proud of myself for the way i handled dot dot dot
1: sure no i i agree it's uh it can be challenging but i think um you know some people do need to build more of a habit of acknowledging when they did something well because you know sometimes when you press them you'll find that even these pessimistic people are like well yeah i did well on that Uh, you know, exam I took, but I got to see on this one and this, and so they're excluding the information they already know. Um, and so kind of building a habit of acknowledging and, and and savoring that experience when the good things happen and not, you know, neglecting them when you, when you evaluate things, Uh, you know, making sure to actually take pride in these things instead of just moving on to the next accomplishment without stopping to say that was really good. That was, that was a really great achievement I made. Um, yeah, I I think there is a a cultural tendency to ignore yeah. and move past the things we're good at.
0: Yeah, I'm guilty of it. I uh, I mean, one of the things that I take a lot of um, I don't know, I don't know if pride's a word, but just something that I find very fulfilling and nourishing for me is to put food on the table for people. Like the preparing of the food, the cooking. So we like dinner at my house is a is a ritual where mm. you know. At around 5 30 or 6, everyone in the house is going to hear me scream dinner and <laughs> it's being served. And that's like six days a week. So 300 times a year, I do this wow. and I'm pretty good at it. Like I've worked in restaurants when I was younger and I watch YouTube videos about how to cook things. I'm always learning how to cook better. But, um, you know, once in a while, It's not good. (laughs) And man, do I take it. And like, no, and no one else at the table cares. Like my family has expressed to me many times how grateful for they are that, you know, they could come in from work, whatever. And there's like, you just sit down and there's like a legit meal that everybody's going to be together and enjoy. (laughs) And if I cook the roast medium well instead of medium, like it pains me inside. Like I'm torturing myself and nobody else cares. Don't, like right. so like we all have our own version of that, you know, in our lives. So to be able to, and which is some form of detachment or some form of attachment of, I need to do this thing to feel good enough to be, you know, worthy of the love at the people in the table or whatever. Um, right. And it's, it's in our mind. So like the value of being able to restructure, reframe, these things, like I don't celebrate all the good meals much more than oh, it's pretty good. It came out good. It's like oh, I just overlooked that pretty quick. But the ones that don't, man, it's like my whole, like I'm just not worthy of existing because I, you know, it was in the oven four minutes too long.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. No. It. It's. Uh. It is cool that that's a virtue domain for you. You know the the way that you. Feel fulfillment from that tells you that's something you want to keep in your life, and probably you'd feel a loss if you were no longer the one cooking. Like this kind of gets to what I'm talking about about the diversions. You know, if you if you got to a point where you could afford it, you might be tempted to like hire a hire a private chef and and no longer out. have to cook anymore. And and that uh you know two dimensional gain might actually be a three dimensional loss for you. Right, I'd be um,
0: missing out of the the beauty of what living means to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's funny that, that cooking's that for you because um totally different for me. Uh my my partner can cook and I'll play piano while she cooks, and that's kind of a win-win situation. Oh, nice. yeah, <laughs> so yeah, for sure. But uh yeah, now every, everyone's kind of got their own. And and um, you know, I think you often find that the, the low periods of your life are where you lost something that used to serve that role for you. And and that can be a relationship. You know, people do get depressed after losing relationship sometimes sometimes you'll lose someone close to you and you'll grieve for a period and then move past it. I think the reason why some people actually fall into a long-term depression is because that relationship served as a big virtue domain. It was a major outlet for you know things that they were good at and they haven't found another one. they haven't been able to bring those out again. Uh, and the same, you know it, it's very common with job loss. it's very common with uh, you know any major transition in life and I think this is, a big part of why, because you lose those virtue domains. And you have to rebuild them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, there's a few people that come to mind in my life I know suffer a lot from depression and it makes me uh, it's just it makes me think about them and makes me want to give them your
1: book. I hope you will. Maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time. I was looking forward to this. We were supposed to chat a while back and for whatever reason it got postponed and then we fought through some technical difficulties earlier, so I'm glad we stuck it out and rolled the dice with uh, the storm on your end and a um, little bit of editing, but I think we got some good points. And uh, you're a great writer, man. It's interesting. It's a very different approach in the way my mind works, and it's really refreshing for me to to kind of see these ideas from a real more like a technical angle. It's very interesting, um, and it's cool that it's out there, and it's a, I think it's a great tool for a lot of people um if people want to learn more how do they find out where do they get the book and where do they it looks like you had some other products too like those self uh introspective inf- <laughs> int- introspective introspective
1: cards yeah that, did i it. say that right yeah introspection cards there's a. Uh... There, there's a few of those cool products and, and uh, online programs and then the community mind form as well. The best way to to jump into all of it is to go to designingthemind.org slash becoming. Uh, and that has the links to pre-order the new book, which uh, I would love for you to do, but it'll also let you get a couple of free books uh, down at the bottom. I will send you the psychotext Toolkit and the Book of Self-Mastery, which are both sort of shorter books that I've Put together, Book of Self-Mastery is a great quote book that covers a lot of ancient modern thinkers, um, and I'll send those right to your email if you head there. But um, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate all that, and and I'm glad we pushed through the technical difficulties as well. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, well, thanks again, and I look forward to our, our paths crossing again in the future. For the listeners out there, always grateful for your listening. I hope you hope you enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you all have a great day.